no denying how important hockey has been to the way Canadians see themselves. It's our game, historically the product of long winters and frozen ponds, played by tough farm boys and eventually many tough and skilled women. The heroes and stories are many and continue to play a central role in the nation's character. But as hockey kept up with Canada's evolution into a diverse multicultural society, is the culture of hockey resistant to the kind of change that's needed to make it reflect the current realities of this country? How can we overcome that resistance so that everyone has a chance to enjoy this most Canadian of sports? Welcome to the Perspectives Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Maurice. I'm joined today to talk about diversity in hockey by a hockey legend. Cassie Campbell Pascal is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, Canada Sports Hall of Fame inductee, a member of the Order of Canada, and a celebrated broadcaster who was the first woman to do color commentary on Hockey Night in Canada. Thanks so much for joining us, Cassie. Thanks, Stephen. And Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also joined by Lisa Ferkel, Director of Hockey Sponsorship at Scotiabank. Lisa is an active member of the Sponsorship Marketing and Sports Industries. Among other positions, she's Vice Chair of the Sponsorship Marketing Council of Canada and has committee roles with the Greater Toronto Hockey League Community Pillar and the Black North Initiative Sports and Entertainment Division. She was recognized by the Toronto Star in 2018 as one of the most influential women in hockey. Lisa, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, Cassie. Can you tell us what hockey looked like when you first started playing as a kid? I mean, I guess at that point, diversity meant that women were, or young girls were gradually being allowed to, to play hockey, maybe instead of ringette at the time. What were the challenges that you and other young women faced coming up in what was probably a bit of a boy's or a man's world? Yeah, I think, you know, I think for me as a kid, hockey just looked like a lot of fun, you know, just getting to be on the ice, having a hockey stick and, you know, hockey equipment on and, and being like my older brother, right? That's the way I remember seeing it. And I also remember having to ask my parents a few times before they would let me play. And it was simply because girls didn't really play at that time. And they were worried about what parents were going to say. And, and I actually started playing hockey in the United States and I had to play with the boys because they didn't have a girls league. So, you know, my parents in a, in a protective kind of way were sort of thinking or steering me in a different direction just because it wasn't really the sport that young girls played. And I remember a, a girl on my brother's team, her name was Jennifer Minkus and she played and she was like my last argument. Well, Jennifer plays and we, you know, our families were really close. And uh, that was sort of, I think when the light bulb went on for my parents, they're like, yeah, Jennifer does play and she's really good. But I, you know, I remember getting half dressed and showing up a little bit later than everybody else. And, you know, heading into the dressing room was all boys and, you know, always staying half dressed to leave. And um, for, but from a kid's perspective, I'll be honest with you, like they didn't know I was a girl until the end of the year. You know, we had a swimming party and I think the kids, we we didn't care. We just wanted to play, you know, but I think sometimes other issues came in through parents where it just wasn't a generation where young girls played. And um, so you'd hear different negative things from that. But I just remember having fun as a kid and I was fortunate that, you know, my parents did support me and my brother supported me and, and I could be just like him. So how old were you when you started playing on a girls team? I was probably about 11, I would think, 10 or 11 when I started. I moved back to Canada, I moved back to Brampton and played for the Brampton Canadettes, which, you know, ironically and, and luckily was the biggest girls hockey association in the world at the time for me. And I moved back to a perfect location and, uh, and then just never looked back, you know, that was, uh, the, the April Easter tournament that they were known for and just, you know, playing the Leaside Wildcats and Scarborough and Mississauga. And, you know, we only had about four or five teams in the GTA area, which, you know, there's so many teams there now. But, um, you know, it was it was nice to be able to play against all young girls. For sure. 
I had a, a daughter who played rep hockey, who played with Lee Side and with Scarborough and played against, and I usually got killed by the Brampton candidates. I have to say that even now, and that was a few years ago, I had a son who played rep hockey as well, uh, played for the Toronto Aces. Even this four or five years ago, hockey, like it was still a pretty white place to be. Uh, I'm guessing it was probably even more the case when you first started out. What And Brampton, very, very multicultural part of Toronto, very diverse part of Toronto. Uh, was any of that diversity reflected at the rink? Not particularly. You know, I think uh, when I was growing up in Brampton, it wasn't as diverse as it is now. And, you know, but I do remember one friend and player, her name was Nikki Maynard, and, and she was a, a black player and she was amazing. And she was a defenseman, and uh, I also played soccer with her as well. She was a remarkable athlete, but I kind of do really remember her family being the only diverse family. Um, but I also just remember her as being a friend and being an amazing hockey player. And I think, again, you know, in the women's game, we we we, we accepted everybody, you know, and, and I think that's something that um, the men's game can probably learn from. You know, we just accept everybody. We want more people involved in women's hockey. We want the game to grow, and... Um, and, and Nikki Maynard is the first one that comes to mind as being, you know, really sort of, uh, from, you know, a diverse group and, and she was really a leader in that category. Right. I mean, I guess there are almost two different strains. For a long time, the, the focus would have been on growing the women's game in Canada. And I think probably a lot of, uh, a lot of progress has been made. And then there are other issues. Maybe we'll come back to sort of the issues around, you know, people of color and different, uh, underrepresented communities but what would you how would you describe the state maybe we'll start with you lisa at that sort of minor league level the state of women's or girls hockey uh at uh at the younger at the younger ages how scotiabank's been involved with hockey for a very long time i'm sure you're familiar with the state of play yeah um you know pre-pandemic the data was telling us that actually girls hockey was the one area of hockey that was on the rise um, I, I recently read a MLC Foundation research report, though, that said that, unfortunately, uh, post-pandemic and, and now, uh, one in three girls aged 6 to 29 are actually, like, less interested in sport across Ontario than ever before. Uh, as Canada's hockey bank, Scotiabank's committed to girls' hockey. We've been, Cassie has been our poster child for Scotiabank Girls Hockey Fest since Geez, cast 2006 when we started with Ottawa, um, the Senators back in the day. And now we've scaled the program across all of our NHL partnerships. And, and that program really gives girls aged 7 to 14 an opportunity to learn the life skills off the ice and then on the ice, hear from their mentors like Cassie Campbell-Pascal and, and Natalie Spooner. Um, going back to the pandemic, we also launched, uh, we had to pivot that program. We couldn't have on-ice training. So we developed Scotiabank Rising Teammates, Scotia Rising Teammates, where um, Cassie and a number of uh, the girls on Team Canada were proud partners of Team Canada and Canada, uh, Hockey Canada um, were mentoring these girls and, and encouraging them to stay in the sport and, and keeping with it because of all the wonderful life lessons that hockey can benefit um, our youth. Great. And how, how does that sort of transfer or translate into the higher levels of, of hockey Canada? What, what is the, what is the state of women's hockey at the higher levels? I mean, I know there's still controversy about professional leagues and what's going on with that and the role of the NHL or not. 
and Lisa, you're wearing a Players Association jersey there. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a, a little bit of a, a sense of what's going on at sort of the elite level of women's hockey right now, Cassie? Well, we just won gold, right, Cass? We're, we're, we're the best in the world right now, Team Canada at the Women's Worlds. Well, I, I think the rivalry between Canada and the U.S. over the years um, has really put women's hockey on the map. And, you know, now we have Team Finland that's come in and, you know, upset Canada, you know, a few years, the world championships prior and, and were able to win a silver medal. And some would say even a gold medal because it was a bit of a controversial finish. But, you know, I, I think the parity in the women's game from one to three um, is as strong as it's ever been. Uh, and I think the parity from, you know, four to 12 has, is the strongest that it's ever been internationally. You know, I, I, I'm, I can say that, uh, you know, I retired in 2006 and my couple of my first projects or first fights, if you will, were let's get women in the Hockey Hall of Fame uh, and let's have a professional women's league. And, you know, I was part of the chair of the Canadian Women's Hockey League that folded and, and watched it grow and watched it struggle and watched it grow and watched it struggle. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm of the belief that in order for us to be successful, you know, we, we do need the NHL brand in behind us and, and their infrastructure. And it just really makes sense. And a similar model to the WNBA, but something that is probably not as big to start, you know, something a little smaller. And, you know, so it's disappointing for me that still years later, you know, we still don't have a true professional women's league. And, you know, we've had leagues, you know, like I can say that the Canadian Women's Hockey League and the NWHL who, who've call themselves professional, but by no means do I think we're at a level of professional that these young players deserve. And, you know, having a rink full-time to put their equipment in, having, you know, access to physiotherapists on a full-time basis, you know, having access to sticks and tape on a full-time basis, you know, these are minor, minor things that even young midget boys hockey teams have access to. And, uh, you know, I think the current player is just pushing for more. They want more. And it's not necessarily about a financial uh, benefit, although being paid to play would be great. I think the players predominantly are fighting for a proper infrastructure, um, you know, that, that allows them to have a professional arena to play in and call home on a regular basis, um, you know, things like that. So from that standpoint, I think it's really frustrating that we don't have a professional women's league yet. Um, and I know for those of us that have worked tirelessly behind the scenes to push for it, it becomes frustrating at time, but I do believe it's going to happen. And I do believe the right thing for women's hockey will happen because it's a great sport and because we have great people within it. What are the barriers to that, to that happening now? Or, I mean, it's been years that, uh, people like you have been pushing for it. What's, what's standing in the way? Well, I think COVID, COVID was a big, you know, big barrier for a lot of women's sports, you know, um, a lot of professional men's leagues lost money. You know, that's just the reality, right? Not having their fans there, not being able to play a full schedule. And so to some degree, I think women's hockey gets pushed to the back burner. Okay, well, we'll get to it. But now we have all these other big problems within our own brand, if you will, within our own leagues that, um, you know, we, we got pushed, I think, further down the list, which is unfortunate. But I, I think that's what happened during the pandemic, you know, as our healthcare workers were fighting tirelessly every single day to do the best jobs that they can, we still had marginalized groups that were continually now being even more marginalized. And, um, and you know, until we kind of get through this pandemic 100%, I, I still think that it'll be a struggle for, for things like women's hockey to continue to build that professional platform. Right. You mentioned the other marginalized communities. I think maybe we will talk about that a little bit. Um, Lisa, I'll come back to you in a second because I know Scotiabank is 
doing a lot in that space, particularly right now. I'll talk first about, like, I guess maybe about like sort of the culture of hockey, at least as it gets sort of passed down through the NHL as the as the biggest league in in the world. Has how much do you think, Cassie, culture of the NHL gets in the way of greater inclusion of marginalized communities? And so, you know, you look at the first person under contract to come out as gay. He was a Predators, I think, uh, in Nashville, yeah. Um, now yes. playing at Edmonton, like it's kind of crazy that the first time that happens is in 2021, and you know, I'd say people of color are still underrepresented in the ranks of the NHL. But what's your assessment of the state of diversity in the NHL in terms of setting the tone for everybody else below? Well, I think we need to be better. Right. And, you know, I think we need to have people from more diverse backgrounds involved and leading the way, because, you know, who am I to say how certain people grow up in different cultures and different backgrounds? Who am I other than to be a leader and be there and support them and include them and all those types of things? But who am I to be the expert on how we get more and more diverse groups into hockey? You know, I think we need more diverse leadership. Um, I think that's it starts there. And. We also need people like myself and, and Lisa at Scotiabank to be supportive and to be like, okay, we're, we're in this together. How do we, you know, help us make this better? And I think that's really important is um, to make sure that we have the po- proper people in the leadership groups to understand what the different cultures go through with, you know, not being able or not being included in hockey. Why is that? You know, explain to us, why is that? How do we make it better? And I think if we all start dealing with these issues and, and in a solution-based way, I think we're all going to be better for it. And if our leadership groups, you know, look outside of their own leadership groups for help and for encouragement and for leadership and all those types of things, I think we'll all be better off as a society if we start looking more at things as a solution-based mindset, right? Not what the issues are. Let's find the solutions, you know, let's spend less time, you know, talking about the problems and more time fixing the problems. And, and I think it, it's leaders like Lisa who've done that and and Scotiabank who've done that and tried to do that and bringing people in and, um, and bringing, you know, experts in around them. And I think that's what great leaders do is they bring people around them that know more about those situations than they do. Yeah. Thanks, Cass. I'll jump in, Stephen, if it's okay. Um, You know, uh, research tells us that the lack of inclusivity within hockey actually does stem from financial inaccessibility, an absence of familiarity slash relatability, and then this this notion of an intimidation from a longstanding culture of discrimination. These are issues that prevent the game we all love from being truly Canadian and, and reflective of today's society. But as the sport continues to evolve, so has our commitment to making the game more inclusive. And so about a year ago, we started on our our journey to evolve our kids' community hockey strategy. And and the research clearly told us that not only did we have a place of equity, we're coming from a position of strength because of programs like Scotiabank Girls Hockey Fest, because of longstanding programs like Project North, where we work in collaboration with a charity to donate equipment to the youth in Canada and Nunavut um, of Canada's North. And really introducing them to the game. And, you know, hockey for all is our answer and our commitment to to um to, to supporting change within the game because we're not no longer hiding behind it. Like we love the game, we want it to flourish, we want it to grow. And so hockey for all is Scotiabank's answer to to that commitment. And 
So what does that what does that look like in practice? That different. I mean, hockey for all is the new initiative that Scotiabank has launched this just this fall recently. How does it, how has that evolved from what Scotiabank's various hockey related programs looked like before? Correct. Um, so it it's a, involves a two million dollar financial commitment, a financial pivot of existing philanthropy dollars to be steered towards these programs and platforms that 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 tack the the issues uh, from two pillars: uh, the financial aspect and then the cultural aspect. And you know. The call start with the cultural. A lot of it is about education. Cassie was just talking about education. Like we need to bring in the right people that are going to do, you know, the unconscious bias training. Um, we're working with the Hockey Diversity Alliance and actually Cassie's other employer, Sportsnet, to introduce and launch an education program. Working with some of the top academics in this space in our in our country, you know, we're really excited with about that from an LGBT plus standpoint. Uh, we're working with You Can Play and, offer, and we're going to be offering education to our employees at Scotiabank um, on those similar topics to to teach them about, um, you know, uh, just ed- educating them on, on what it means to be inclusive and accepting of all. Hmm. And what kind of response do you get from those communities? Um, you, you, are you finding that there are lots of people who want to play in in those places among those communities? Is it... Does it make you optimistic about the future of hockey when you see the response that you get? You know what? It really does. Because um, to Cassie's point, leaders and like whether it be talent and, and, and players like Cassie or sponsors, I, I think we, we all have, I dare I say it, an obligation to not fix things because you don't, you don't want people to feel ju- the, without judgment. Like we just all want to recognize that that we want to grow and evolve the game. We're not saying there's anything bad about it because it does teach camaraderie, teamwork, all these wonderful quality qualities that actually translate to life skills off the ice, right? And make better um, adults and better professionals. I, re- I really, I have to believe we're optimistic. One last question for you, Cassie, after a long and illustrious career. What is it about the sport that makes you want to not walk away from those difficulties, but try to address them and fix them so that the sport is better for other people? Well, because I just love it, you know, and I think the the positives of hockey far outweigh the negative. Um, you know, what kids and people can learn from the sport of hockey as far as respect and responsibility and hard work and teamwork and, you know, all those characteristics that can make you happy and successful that you can learn as a young kid that take you on into being, you know, a great leader and a great adult. And so that's kind of what keeps me coming back. And the fact that I I do believe that, you know, even in such a down moment, like we've seen recently, that it can create change. It is just a sport that's, it's, it's powerful enough. It's fun enough. It is great enough to create change. And I think, um, you know, you, you kind of can't let those incidences bring you down and you have to continue to see the strength in what the sports actually, actually does. And the fact that, you know, through Kyle Beach's story, for example, change will be created and hockey will be greater because of the change that's created. And that's, that's the kind of mindset that I keep thinking that even when we're going to have negative moments in hockey, that we can still come together as a group of leaders and, and create change that betters the sport, but also betters the communities around us. Okay. Yes, it was well said. And I think we'll end it on that note. Uh, I want to thank you both. I've been speaking with Cassie Campbell-Pascal and with Lisa Ferkel, Director of Hockey Sponsorships at Scotiabank. Thank you both for coming. It's been a great conversation. 
Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Cass. Thanks, for Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Perspectives Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you next time. Please see the Scotiabank website for legal disclaimers.